This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. My name's Tony. Um, I'm on staff here and hopefully still on staff here after speaking this morning. But uh, it's so good to see you. It's great to see everyone. If you're here first time, first time back and stuff, you're so, so very welcome. We love us all getting back together. It's just good to worship God. And it was so good, weren't it, to have that time being able to sing our devotion. When Gordon just said, he just said the words devotion to God and it sort of messed with me a bit in a good way because that's why we're here to worship God and our devotion to him. And, and uh, I don't know about you, but um, I've really enjoyed the Olympics and thought, oh, I could have been like that once. <laughs> I know, the shot putter. I meant the shot putter. <laughs> but anyway, but you know, you look at their lives and you think, wow, they're, they're so remarkable, aren't they? These people who spend all these years just putting so much into it. Like, it's very emotional, isn't it, when you hear the interviews and... I find it really emotional and I don't like to cry and so I fight back every time an English-British person gets a gold. And, um, but even in worship and when, like I say, Gordon brought that bit about devotion to Jesus, like in my head went this thing and I've, it's just that like I thought, wow, these people, even this morning, um, Jason Kenny gets the gold medal and it's like, oh, this is amazing. And, and then I was, when we're in worship, I'm thinking... Yeah, but there was a crown of thorns put on Jesus' head. You know, wow. That's what come over, you know, overwhelmed me this morning. Jesus, what a king. You know, we admire people. They might be Olympians. They might come from other walks of lives. But who is like Jesus? There is no one. And, and this morning, you know, I've got lots of notes. You'll be here ages, just to warn you. But... Uh, well, if they ask you once in 18 months, come on, you know, that's my excuse. But uh, I just want to, I'm in anticipation, not of a great preach particularly, but anticipation that Jesus is amongst us and he's going to do stuff amongst us today. And, and so that's my, that's my expectation. That's, I have faith for that this morning, that God's going to come and meet with you and he's going to come and meet with me this morning and, and do something and change us and make us more like him. And if that's what we go away with, then what a win. Amazing. So this is part three of our Summer of Celebration series. And today we're going to look at Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of, at Cana. And weddings are great occasions. We've probably all been to them. A time to celebrate with the bride and groom as they embark on an adventure together and with God. John and Catherine got married very recently. <laughs> Lovely. I was there. It's a great day. And we've had loads of weddings here at New Community. It's free over the lockdown that I'm aware of. And uh, we know how to celebrate a wedding and a party at New Community. <laughs> well... <laughs> As long as you're done by 10, we're okay with that. And the PA's ready, shut down by 11, and the seats are out for Sunday morning. Other than that, we know how to party at a wedding. Just be grateful, those of you who got married in recent years, 25 years ago, you had to be done by five. So anyway, anyway, the story of the wedding at Cana. 
So let's read the story. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So, weddings in those days looked a little bit different. The culture was very, very different. So let me just set the scene. Jesus was from a town called Nazareth of around 500 people apparently and nine miles away there was a village called Cana which would have had a population of a much smaller amount, maybe 70 or 80 people. So this is a very localised event. Everyone would have known everyone. That would be a nice thing to do, wouldn't it? Know everyone at the party. They They were poor people, and a wedding is one of the most significant events. Two teenagers engaged, and that in itself meant a whole lot more than it does today. It means a betrothing. I'm committed to you so much more. I'm going to marry you. So the planning would have taken place. It would have taken about a year to plan the thing. And it was something, there was a culture going on in those days, an honour and shame culture. So what happened on that day and those few days of the wedding was of high significance, really important. And it was about the whole family. In fact, it was about the whole village. This wasn't just about the couple and their big day and how amazing they look, but it was about the whole family and the whole village. And it also brought a bit of kudos. You know, the bigger they became, the the stronger the community was, the stronger the economic community. So it was really, really, really important, a wedding. And it was the bridegroom's responsibility primarily to deliver. Also, the bridegroom's responsibility to to build a home for for him and his wife on the family plot. So a lot is going on in the build-up to this wedding. And as we read, the wedding was already into the third day, and the wine had run out. And John, who wrote the book of John, obviously, uh, it's a biography of Jesus' life. John says in in chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh, And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John writes the account saying he has seen the glory of God, and he wants us to see it too. John accounts for eight of Jesus' miracles, and he says at the end of the gospel, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So that's some of the stuff that John's written about. And then Jesus starts his ministry, the first miracle, 
was, was perceived as a fairly insignificant event. Not even ready for it, it could appear. There is so much more to it than just being pressured into it by his mum. There is the Son of God just about to start out on his public ministry. He's now got a group of disciples who've been caught up in this with him. He's been baptised in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. That would have freaked me out if I was a follower of Jesus and you heard his voice on his baptism moment, but they're still pressing on. And so now Jesus is kicking off his public ministry. Have you ever thought about that? What would you have started with? The raising of Lazarus from the dead, pretty powerful. Feeding 20,000 people on the side of a hill with a few fish and a few bits of bread. Or with a small crowd of people turning some water into wine. I guess we would have chosen a different method But Jesus starts with what appears to be a small-time miracle with some family and friends. Is he really just resolving a bit of an awkward situation, saving the couple and saving the groom from some embarrassment? But before we get right into it, I just want to, in verse 2, it says this. Jesus was also invited to the wedding. The couple and the family wanted Jesus there. And there's always an invitation around Jesus. And I want to ask you a question. Have you invited Jesus into your life? You might be here this morning and you've been dragged along by someone or you've come here and you don't know Jesus. Well, Jesus invites you into your life. He wants to come into your life and there's an invitation for you. But it's also much broader than that. There's an invitation to every one of us to invite Jesus into our life in every moment, in every stage. Don't have no-go areas in in your life where you say, you can have all this Jesus, but not that. Invite Jesus into every area of our life. And as we'll see from this story, Jesus is full of compassion, and he engages with our lives, with the lives of this couple and the the people at at the wedding. So Mary, Jesus' mother, brings the embarrassing problem to Jesus. She brings the crisis moment to Jesus. She would have been used to doing that. She knew Jesus was different. She heard the angel telling her about this birth, this miracle birth. So she knew right from from the word go that Jesus was different from his brothers and from any any other person or child. Jesus never did any wrong. Not even when he went woman. But we'll come to that. She pondered the things in her heart that the angel had said to her. Mary had learned to rely on Jesus. Her husband, Joseph, had died some time earlier. And Jesus was the, was the man of the house. And she came to Jesus and she said, the wine has run out. And this actually is the big deal. This is the crisis moment. And it reflects really badly on the groom. And as I said earlier, there's a shame and honour culture. It doesn't say in the verses what what Mary expected of Jesus, but she knew you can expect something and Jesus will have a solution to the situation. Mary says they have no wine. Where do you go in your crisis? When that happens in your life, where do you go? We might think, well, it's not a big crisis, is it? They've been on it for two and a half days, and on the third day, it runs out. (laughs) 
But it was a crisis, the shaman on a culture. This was the, the wine runs out, the party ends. This does not reflect well. It's a big problem. It's a crisis to them. And probably over the last 18 months, we've all had crisis moments. Maybe we've had lots of them, and they're all relative. We've had different, different people, different types of crises over the last year and a half. But if the truth were told, we were having crises before the pandemic, and we'll have them when it's gone. That's the way life runs. Where has the wine run out for you? Emotionally, physically, financially, some other way, you know what's gone on in your life and what's going on in your life. Where is the crisis in your life? Where has the wine run out for you? Our response can be, I'll sort it out myself. I'll work harder. I'll do this. I'll do the other. I'll find some other way of resolving that need in my life. Find other ways to dull the pain. Rather than, I'm in crisis. I'm going to chase after Jesus. I'm going to Jesus. Mary knew where to run. Run to Jesus. Do you know that um, alcohol intake has increased over the pandemic for one in three people? It's easy to go somewhere else to dull the pain. Let's run to Jesus when crisis hits. He's the one who filled up the ceremonial jars from water to wine. And likewise, he wants to meet our needs. He wants to be the one who provides for you and I because he cares. Jesus replied, woman, what has that to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And we could read this at first glance and think, first glance and think Jesus is a bit annoyed that his mum is making demands of him. And he doesn't want to perform this kind of miracle or resolve the problem. And then Jesus does the miracle. But it's not like, oh, well, I'll do it anyway. I was thinking I wasn't going to start this week. I was going to start next week with raising a few from the dead. But because you've asked, let's do it. It wasn't like that at all. Woman, Jesus replied. And I've read a little bit about this. And there is, people say different things. Like one person has written, he wasn't being abrupt. And another person said, he was really abrupt. <laughs> Another person says he was being courteous. Another person, he was very brusque. Someone can tell me what that means later. But anyway. <laughs> but Jesus was making a point, And his point was this. I'm about my father's work. I'm about my father's business. Jesus said later, I only do what I see the father doing. There's a distinction being made. On another occasion, his mum and his brothers were outside. He was in a house. And they, said, they was worried about him. He's going a bit mad. And they say, get him, come, bring him out. And he was going, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? You are. Because he was about the work of his father. That's what was important to him. He does as his mother asks. But Jesus is making it clear right here and now. This is not about you, mother. There is a divine purpose. It's not about a family line. And I think that's really good news. Some of us have the great joy and privilege of coming from a Christian background. Well, praise God for that. That is brilliant, wonderful heritage. But the good news is, whatever your background, it doesn't matter. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He's got a plan for your life. If, and, and I've heard people say, I don't quite fit. 
I'm not, I don't fit the mold. I look different. I act different. I come from a different background. Jesus doesn't say that over your life. You fit. You belong because Jesus has paid the price for you and me. In verse 9, it says, we're introduced to the master of the banquet. He was essentially the MC who ran the event. He called people to celebrate. The bottom line was, it was his job to make the party great. Now, many years ago, in this building, weddings used to take place. I'm only saying this because he sat right there. And Nick Lewis was like an MC. You would, who would have believed it all those years ago, Nick? And this was your job to make the party great. You did a great job. That's what they tell me. Anyway, so when Jesus turns the water into wine and saves the day, do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I'm the true master of the banquet. I'm the Lord of the feast. I come to bring joy. Jesus turns 150 gallons of water into the finest of wines, the best possible wine. And of course, Jesus came to humble himself, even to death. And there will be suffering for him and for his followers. But that is all a means to an end, to an end which is a festival of joy, a celebration, abundant joy, an eternal feast, a celebration that will be incomparable to anything that we can know now. But we can have a foretaste of that joy now, a real foretaste, a taste that will be profoundly consoling and refreshing in the most difficult of times, like living water. That is ultimately what Jesus has come to bring. And that is why it was his first sign. So Jesus reveals his identity as, the, as God the Son and the Lord of the feast. When Mary said, the wine has run out, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Jesus is not saying that it's not the time for his first miracle. He just uses that phrase and it happens time and time again, as you probably know. He's saying, my time to die is not right now. Always before him was his death. You know, Mary, his mum, says, we need more wine. But before him, is he knows what's coming, his death. And so here is Jesus at a, a happy occasion of a wedding. And at his core, the central thinking is about his death. And as Jesus makes this statement, it's as if he's looking beyond his mother. He's looking beyond the couple. He's looking beyond the crowd of people there and saying, I've come to do something far bigger than turn some water into wine. He's come to bring festival joy to this world. He's come to cleanse mankind from his guilt and shame. He's come to bring joy, but I'm going to have to die for it. At a wedding, I don't know about you, you're, you, but I know you can think about your own wedding, how that's been going and stuff like that, or perhaps a wedding to come or things like that, what it would look like. And maybe that's what Jesus is doing. He's looking at his wedding where the bride of Christ, he gathers the bride of Christ. But before that happens, he's got to die for you and me. Jesus and the church, the bride of Christ, spotless and without blemish. And if you're a Christian, that is you. Great joy, but also great horror for Jesus as he knows, although it's not right now, but the hour is coming. It's not yet here, but it is coming. 
Jesus knows he's got to go through the hour. And the only way to unite his bride, the people of God, the church, is through his death. Jesus is going to sip the cup of death. The wine equates to his blood. Jesus said, fill the water jars with, fill the water jars with wine. And it's significant, the ceremonial water jars, they're not chosen by accident. These are jars for purification, for ritual washing and external cleansing. And this had to be done before entering the temple to come before God, to be clean before God. And they, the Old Testament always points to something greater. And the greater is Jesus. In one moment on his death, he shed blood. He deals with all of that ritual, all of that cleansing that needs to go on on an ongoing basis. A once and for all act, Jesus accomplishes all this. He doesn't deal with externals, he deals with the heart. He changes your heart and he changes mine. And he's changing hearts every single day, every single hour, every single moment. His dying has come to deal with all of your brokenness, all of my brokenness, all of my shame, all of my hurt, all of your hurt, all of your hatred, all of mine, all of our anger, and all of our rebellion towards God. He's come to do that on the cross. He paid the price that you and I should have paid. And Jesus really makes it clear that he is the bridegroom. In John 3, Luke 5, Mark 3, and other places, it says, we are the church, we are the bride of Christ. And God chooses metaphors to help us see him better, helps us to understand who he is, but also who we are. When Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, well, we know that we're the sheep. If he is the king, we are the subjects of his kingdom. So when he calls himself the bridegroom, then if you give yourself to Jesus in faith, you are part of the bride of Christ. Wow. It means he really must delight in each one of us. And I've had a real privilege, absolutely. I'm, I, you know, it's been a privilege for me. I've been an elder in this church, I, think, I don't know, five or six years, something like that. And the joy of taking weddings, most recently John and Catherine's. And, and it is a real privilege because you, know, you normally stand at the front here and everyone's facing this way and just say, put your phones off and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then the music starts and the bride walks down the aisle and the groom is like, if he's not literally jumping up and down, that you can see they are leaping up and down as they see their wife-to-be come down the aisle. What a joyful moment as she comes looking beautiful and resplendent, absolutely amazing as she appears in the best outfit ever possible. All the wedding garments, the jewellery, their hair looks perfect. So amazing. And as someone who's taking the wedding, you're stood here and the, the, everyone's sort of craning their necks and you have the best view possible. And it's such a beautiful thing to see the bride coming down and, and just coming there. Don't matter how, how can I put this? No, she looks beautiful in every respect. <laughs> Perfect, almost. And... 
That's how Jesus looks upon us, as the bride of Christ. He is leaping up and down with joy. He sings over us. He loves us. He laid down his life. The hour has come. He's died for us. He rose again. And we are the bride of Christ. What a joy. However we might feel in our ragged clothes, we're the bride of Christ. We're spotless. We're blameless. That's you and me. It is something to get a little bit excited about. He loves us like that. Perfect love. Wow. This is based on the truth of his word. But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than just some facts. It's something about it. It's a sense of, it's a sensory feeling to this whole thing. The wine is the best possible wine. It's the best ever. I'm no expert in wine. I've, I know I've drunk some rubbish, but I've never really tasted the best. But what a feeling. It's something, it's more than just, here's another glass of wine. This is the best wine. God wants us to experience him, really experience him. It says this in Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not just head knowledge. He wants you to know him. He really, really wants you to know him. And we can experience a foretaste of the groom with us. You begin to hunger for it. I hope you are. Then you delight in it. Then you're satisfied in him, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his goodness. This outweighs everything, all the crisis, all the difficult moments. We're invited into a feast, not to obey a set of rules, not to do your best, but to experience his beauty and his loveliness. Jesus is promising complete acceptance and entrance. There's a banquet coming that we're all invited to, but we can taste that now. Mary went to Jesus and said, the wine's run out. Pretty much all she said. But then she did say one other thing to the servants, do as he asks. Do as he says, in fact. Well, I think there's a couple of things I want to just draw out from this. This last thing I said, do as he asks. There's an adventure to be had. They were servants, right? It's so easy to skip past them. They were key. They could have gone, nah, I'm not doing that. I am not going to look a fool. But they did what Jesus asked. And there's an adventure to be had for you and me, whoever you are, whether you've been a Christian three weeks or 50 years. There's an adventure to be had when we say yes to Jesus. Today, say yes to Jesus. When he speaks to you, do it. You will be on an adventure that you've never been on before. So there's two things I want us to respond to because we're going to finish here. And the first thing is the one about that sense of the finest of wines and experience something of the feast of God, that feast of joy. And you might be someone who it's been a long time since you've really feasted on the joy of God. And I want you to respond. Three things, actually. That's one. The second one, I'm not making this up as I go along, honest. The second one, there's an invitation. If you're not a Christian, to say, Jesus, I want you in my life. Come in. And we will help you with the further details of that. But it's not difficult because he loves you. And the third one is, I want to say yes to Jesus in all the things. Sometimes he asks difficult things. It's not always as easy as 
yeah, I'll give you a bit of water, turn it into wine. But there's nothing like following Jesus because it changes your life. You get less caught up in, in the stuff around us. You know, how many golds or how many silvers or whatever the stuff is. They're, you know, they're important things in our lives. But to follow Jesus and say yes to him, oh, you'll be bouncing off the walls. It'll be the best thing. I can't describe it. I wish I had better vocabulary. But so I want us to um, respond. So I'm going to get us to those of us who say one of those three things. I want to say yes to Jesus for the first time. I want that joy of God, that experience of God. In other words, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the second category. And the third one, yeah, I'm ready again to say yes to Jesus. So if you're in one of those three categories, I'd love you to stand. I know it's a bit risky, but it's worth it. So thank you. Brilliant. Let's stand. Come on. If you really want to receive from God today, let's stand because we're going to pray. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to get other people to pray around. And if you haven't had the courage to stand up, you want to be prayed for, of course, that's fine. Jesus loves you. So I'm going to pray and then the music will go on. And if you're standing, someone's going to come and pray for you. Quickly tell them what it is and then they're going to pray for you. But I'll pray first. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us, that you love us that much and that we can know you, really know you and you changed our lives. And Lord, we want to live for you. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, we want to say, Jesus, we want to obey your very word. We want to experience your love. We want to experience the joy of God. We want to, we want to just know that joy that's deep within us Lord, we don't want to go on yesterday's manner, last week's experience, next Sunday, wait for next Sunday. We, we want to be overwhelmed with the joy of God. So come and meet with us, Lord. Come and do what only you can do in, in amongst us in the name of Jesus. Amen.